Hello, and welcome to the Planet Beyond podcast, brought to you by Fugro, the leading partner in uncovering geodata from the greatest subsea depths right to outer space, and hosted by me, John Baston Pitt. When introducing this subject, innovation for transformation, it's very difficult to avoid superlatives, and maybe I shouldn't try. This is the biggest transformation and the biggest challenge we on this planet have ever faced, and the future is at stake. It's true there are signs that we are on the cusp of creating a brighter, cleaner future. And to find out how we're going to tackle that, we are joined by some of the world's foremost thought leaders, five in fact. We have Sophie Hildebrand, Senior Vice President for Exploration and Production International at Equinor, and previously served as Chief Technology Officer since April 2019. We also have Pavel Mikalak, and he's Fugro's Global Director for Innovation. We also have Dirk Schmidt, now, he is the Vice President of Research Strategy at Shell, and I haven't even mentioned his PhD in string theory. We have Jodica Vermani, Executive Director of the Schmidt Ocean Institute. And finally, we have Peter Becking, Hyperloop Team Captain at Telf University. And he's focused upon a new transportation system that has the potential to totally revolutionize how we live, work and travel. So thank you all for joining us today. And we're going to start by hearing from each guest about how their company is innovating to transition to a net zero and climate conscious world. Sophie, can we turn to you? Absolutely. So... Last November, Equinor set the ambition of becoming a net zero company by 2050. This is in line with our commitment to the goals of the Paris Agreement. We know that uh, whilst there's an energy transition happening and we want to be part of the energy transition, we're also going to need oil and gas for a long period in the future. And so we want to ensure that we're reducing our emissions from the oil and gas that we produce. So we want to maintain industry-leading carbon efficiency in four really big areas. Number one, aiming to reach upstream targets of less than eight kilograms of CO2 per barrel by 2025. Secondly, achieving carbon-neutral operations by 2030. Third, reducing our absolute greenhouse gas emissions from operated offshore fields and onshore plants in Norway towards net zero by 2050 without any offsets. And fourthly, ensuring that no routine flaring and we have effectively near zero methane emissions intensity by 2030. So that's what we're doing in the oil and gas portfolio. But we're also growing in renewable energy. So we're able to take the skills that we have as being an offshore energy company and transition those skills into, into renewables. And we're growing in offshore wind. We're actually increasing our production capacity year over year. This is a reality for Equinor. We actually have real projects that are large-scale projects in the UK, in the US, and um, 
What's really cool about those projects is we're transitioning skills that we have from oil and gas into a renewables future. To achieve net zero, though, we know that this is a really difficult target. There's going to have to be a well-functioning market for CCS, um, carbon capture and storage, um, and natural sinks need to be developed. We also need to have the development of competitive technologies for hydrogen. We need to build zero emission value chains. Equinor is driving these projects through um, various smaller projects, one of which I'll talk about called Northern Lights. That's something where we aim to store CO2 from industrial sites across Europe in reservoirs in the North Sea. And we're partnered with, with our partners Shell and Total on, on this project. And we also assume that there are going to be increasing shares of oil and gas that are going to be need, needed to use for petrochemicals towards 2050 as well. And so we need to make sure that we're transitioning all aspects towards net zero. So Equinor recognizes the transitions happening. None of us know the exact pace, but it's happening around us right now. And it's all sorts of little pieces that need to come together in order to make it happen. Thank you very much, Sophie. Dirk, can we turn to you next? Well, we are also an oil and gas company on the uh, path or on a transition to become net zero or net zero emission energy company. Indeed, also by 2050. So in that sense, there's not much new to what Sophie said about Equinor. Um, I guess you've seen some of the, or you may have seen some of the publications where Shell actually showed that indeed, uh, we are building on our um, accelerated pathway to become net zero by 2050 or sooner in pace with society. I'll come back to that later, what that means for us. Um, but already we have set quite a few uh, significant steps of how to become, how we think we can become a net zero emission company. For one of the things is that we said that uh, peak oil in Shell has actually been uh, in the past, in 2019. We also said that frontier exploration will stop in 2025. Uh, clearly showing as an oil and gas company that there is another future and it's very clear to our staff as well as to our shareholders and stakeholders that Shell has actually uh, turned uh, this big uh, tanker, for lack of a better word, into a different direction. These words, and that's often what you hear, is that, yeah, we can eloquently state what our targets are and what our intentions are and how difficult it may be. And, and that is also true for Shell. We cannot do this on our own. These are indeed challenges that um, affect or address a whole ecosystem of which companies like Shell are part. And we also set in motion significant investments in hydrogen. Hydrogen is for us a very important uh, carrier, an energy carrier, as well as a storage medium uh, that has lots of attractiveness. Uh, one of them being that there are multiple pathways to make hydrogen completely carbon free. And let's face it, um, the challenge that's put by climate change is not about the color of energy. It's about CO2 in the atmosphere. Mm. Another thing that we are really putting a lot of effort in is in uh, so-called nature-based solutions. 
which is really opening up uh, an entirely different set of markets, uh, not immediately, um, but just to give you a comparison, there is about 77.0 gigaton of CO2 each year converted into biomass. So that's a huge potential sink. In addition to CCS and geothermal, we deeply believe that as a energy company, we probably can bring something to the table around energy storage and resource storage. And we are investing in wind and solar because those are indeed renewable resources. But we're also very cautious that maybe not everywhere renewable resources will grow as much because you need a lot of land and need a lot of space, you need a lot of storage to deal with the intermittencies uh, that are uh, intrinsic to uh, renewable, uh, renewable resources. Thank you very much. An enormous range of pathways there. Joe Dickel, can we can we turn to you next? Yes, thank you, John. Um, so the Schmidt Ocean Institute, we uh, actually operate uh, a research vessel uh, to conduct research and um, test technology, marine technology in the ocean. As we know, the ocean covers 70% of the Earth's surface and it represents about 99% of the habitable space on this planet, by volume that is. Um, and it has, you know, it is a controlling factor in our climate. Um, and we come from the premise that in, we have to understand the ocean because without understanding something, you don't value it. And if you don't value it, then you don't care for it. Uh, and so in order to make that, you know, the ocean uh, healthy and vibrant and a part of our lives, which, which we need in order to make human health, uh, human lives healthy as well, we need that chain of understanding and research to start with. So the Schmidt Ocean Institute was established in 2009 uh, by Eric and Wendy Schmidt, um, who are philanthropists, and it was based on the premise that it's really difficult for scientists to go to sea because it's very expensive, and it's expensive because of the ships that are needed to go to sea. So we provide a vessel at no cost, along with high-tech equipment on board, an uh, underwater robot that can go down to 4,500 meters, uh, returning 4K live footage from the ocean uh, as we are on these expeditions, uh, and we have a high-performance computer system that, the, that scientists can use. Um, and it's really based on the intent of using sophisticated technologies to further scale up our ability to explore the ocean and rapidly improve that understanding that we so desperately need. Um, and, and then in exchange for that free uh, access to this type of equipment, we ask scientists to openly share their data and their, and their findings. And that's based on the premise that the more, the faster you can share information, the faster the speed of innovation, the faster the speed of understanding. And once you uh, increase that speed of understanding and innovation, the faster you can take action and the faster you can react to things. So that's that's the underlying uh, uh, premise behind the Schmidt Ocean Institute. Marvellous, marvellous. Pavel, can you tell us the food growth story? The velocity of innovation which is required for this transformation is, is unprecedented. And it is not a single technology which needs change, but uh, the whole value chain needs technical and uh, social innovating and re-engineering. 
And this is also the journey which we are on in the Fugro. And I'll just use one example here. For this revolution really to be successful, it needs to be heavily powered by data. And, and the traditional approaches are not effective enough. And uh, we need continuous uh, on-demand data acquired by autonomous robotic systems and sensors. We need this uh, wealth of information to be to feed it across industry simulation environment. Aided with AI, it will allow us to predict and reassess resources, energy generation effectiveness, uh, reassess energy demand, but also infrastructure construction costs and, and advice on maintenance. And this tells us that no one person, organization or, or country can solve this challenge on its own. And, and we can recognize it in Fugro very, very well. It requires collaboration between industries, businesses, startups and universities. Uh, but as importantly, it requires a different way of operating within our organization. And, and we're on this journey already. It requires different look at uh, a different way of looking at organizational culture, networks, and tools we use. It requires a different way of looking at topics of crowdsourcing, open standards, or even shared intellectual property. Uh, there are so many things which needs to come together to accelerate this transformation. It's quite unbelievable. I'm very positive looking at the journey. Peter, can we can we hear your opening words? Thank you, John. Uh, my name is Peter Becking. I am part of the Delft Hyperloop team, and we are 39 extremely motivated students of the Delft University of Technology. And as you said, we have put our studies on hold for a year to work on a yeah, shared vision together. Uh, which is making the Hyperloop a reality because we believe that the Hyperloop is a necessary innovation for the transport sector because we really don't want to go back to the emissions uh, as it was before the COVID crisis. And with the Hyperloop, we can reduce those carbon emissions while getting from A to B extremely fast and also very comfortable because the Hyperloop travels through a near vacuum tube. So there's almost no air resistance in the tube. Uh, and also the pod, which is the Hyperloop vehicle, is levitated and propelled by magnets. So there's no contact with the ground, which also reduces all the friction and all the losses there. So that enables the Hyperloop to go extremely fast and also be really energy efficient without, without using car, uh, fossil fuels. And the way we as a student team contribute to the making the Hyperloop a reality is by designing and build it, building a prototype each year. And with that prototype, we will compete against all the other university teams all over the world. And we aim to win the European Hyperloop Week competition in July 2021 in Valencia. Very good. Do you think I was um, going over, over the top when I said that it had the potential to change lives? the way we live, the way we work. Oh, no, I think that's a very good uh, description of the Hyperloop concept because, uh, yeah, you can you can go. We always use the example of going from Amsterdam to Paris uh, within 30 minutes, city center to city center. So it's not only about going extremely fast. Those thousands of kilometers an hour are really, really fun and really exciting. But it's, of course, about, yeah, working in the one part of the continent and living in the other part and still being able to live with your family and have your dream job at the other side of the continent. It will bring people together and it's, it's amazing, all the possibilities. I mean, there were so many, so many topics there to discuss. Let's go a bit deeper. Let's explore leadership, technology, 
But let's start with the topic of collaboration. Let's, let's dive in now. Let's answer the question, can we collaborate better with external partners and avoid working in silos? Dirk, I know you're going to have a lot of examples on this one. I think uh, there are a few things that I guess are important in a collaboration. First of all, it's that it has to be based on a partnership. Good collaborations are amongst partners that are equally contributing, uh, that equally, in a sense, something that is valuable uh, that you jointly realized. That may be easy to sort of point out, well, I can contribute this. But what it really also is a statement on that you will not be able to do this alone. The second thing I guess is important is that people should or should may be helped with that intellectual property is not the only thing uh, that defines a partnership. Mm. Coming out of a commercial uh, entity, that's a difficult thing to uh, to sell sometimes. <laughs> Certainly, if you sell in some parts of Shell, we do this uh, in chemicals, you sell products. You don't want to have people sort of mimicking or copying the products uh, without having to pay for all the research that went into it to be able to assemble it in the first place. So I guess one thing that we need to collectively understand is how far and how can you still collaborate based on on meaningful partnerships without actually destroying intellectual property. One of the things that I used to is that access to internet to intellectual property is usually enough because the differentiation and the competitiveness comes from how you integrate uh, things into solutions for your clients or for your uh, communities and stakeholders that may in fact go way beyond the actual product. So a services consultancy on top of the actual product, which is new in an energy world where usually your supply uh, is now around customer centric solutions. So that's one. They, these are two things that, are, in my view, are very important. And the, the third is, I think, most important is the leadership around not driven by perhaps the absolute requirement to deliver something, mm. but leadership that motivates to use your imagination. If there's one shortage uh, in the, this world, I would argue, is the courage to actually put out a vision and a and appeal on people's imagination and energy that that may unlock uh, because a lot of these collaborations will be quite rocky and will be quite unpredictable yeah we'd yeah. like to make people uh say part of a, a an uncertain future then the last thing you should do is to focus on well you need to deliver by 5 p.m tomorrow otherwise you don't have a job anymore yeah and that's the nightmare uh, that that you would so to marry that, the ability to deliver and to be a little bit predictable in your business with the fact that you need to mobilize people around uncertain futures, but perhaps inspired by a very important, realistic goal is a top leadership challenge. Peter, if I could bring you in here, am I right in saying that you have to work with about 100 different partners every year? That's totally right. Yeah, yeah. As I said, we're... Uh student team and uh, definitely we are not convinced that we can do it alone as Dirk said you have to collaborate to get somewhere and uh, yeah that's why we partner up with uh, yeah 70 to 100 uh, companies every year uh, to realize our dream in uh, building the Hyperloop uh, prototype and we see a very big value in every partnership um, I can give you an example um, a year ago the team uh, really wanted to test their V2 
vehicle to test their prototype. Uh, but there wasn't a really a place uh, to test it and they didn't really have the resources uh, nor the experience to build a track themselves. That's why they partnered up with three Dutch railway partners, uh, ProRail, Strukton and Voestalpine. And together they joined forces to build a 300 meter track where they tested their pod and eventually also broke their own speed record of 364 kilometers an hour. So there you really see how valuable these partnerships can be for, for us, uh, but also for other student teams and for actually, I think, every company in the world. I mean, what you're involved in is a competition, isn't it? Yeah. Jodica, you've got lots of experience in this area, haven't you? Yes, uh, having uh, run competitions for about six years of my life on a international massive scale. Um, so the Shell Ocean Discovery X Prize, of course, was a, um, a $7 million competition in total. We had um, over a thousand people involved in that from start to end with numerous partnerships. There is absolutely no way we could have done that without the partnerships all the way from, you know, the sponsors to all the people who um, helped to make that operational um, on the ground level. So that was a huge, yes, competitions. There is just no way of doing those without partnerships. But but the beauty of competitions is they really spur innovation really quickly. Um, and, and that's what I've witnessed. And I think many of us on this uh, podcast have have witnessed as well. But I also actually wanted to pick up on something uh, Dirk said earlier about collaboration and partnership. And it's not just, you know, one track that you can take. So at the Schmidt Ocean Institute, we can consider that we are collaborating with scientists. And so by offering this facility, uh, which was disruptive at the time, by the way, the idea of offering a ship at no cost was uh, un unbelievable when, when this was first started. But we've had since 2013 almost a thousand scientists from around the world on board uh, and technology developers. And it is a collaboration because they have this access and ability to go out to sea. And we have this amazing uh, collaboration with these scientists who then produce this fantastic work. And collectively, we have this end goal. And this is the vision, again, that, that Dirk was uh, saying earlier, which is to understand the world's ocean through technological advancement, through intelligent observations, and that open sharing of information. So I think all of it ties together, and, and you really need that to speed things and, and make things operate at scale. Sophie, how open was the, um, again, Dirk touched on this point as well, the relationship in your Northern Lights project? Yeah, so... I think we look at these challenges and we recognize many of them are, are kind of encompassing so many different areas. So the Northern Lights data, we've actually released a bunch of the data to the public. Um, so the work that Jyotika is doing at the Schmidt Ocean Institute, trying to get the research to become public, that's actually really important because the more people who start looking at the data, the more insights you get on it. Um, so we put a bunch of the, the data out there, but I, I also really wanted to touch on the fact that 
we we think about these collaborations and and maybe in in certain industries we work with suppliers we need to start thinking about our suppliers as being partners they are partners to delivering an accelerated solution by being more open we get more people looking at the data more ideas we actually as we develop the solutions they become more scalable rather than having this small bespoke solution that works for this very small problem all of a sudden the solution becomes a lot more scalable and when it's scalable we can deploy it in more areas it can have more impact and the cost of it comes down and the cost of, you know the energy transition is actually quite expensive as as well there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be put in there's a lot of new markets that need to be developed so it's really important that we develop scalable solutions that can be deployed in many many areas rather than just one or two bespoke areas and for that we need trust and for that we need to work with each other in different ways got to move on now technology technology will be critical But is the cycle from development to deployment too slow? How can we accelerate getting new technologies to market? Now, Jodica, I'll come to you first, then Pavel, I think. Um, The Smith Ocean Institute is well known for its use of -of state-of-the-art technology. Could you lead us into this? Um, Yes, certainly. So uh, one of the things that we um, do provide at no cost is that access for people to test their technology in the open ocean um, on the premise that you know of course it's very difficult and very expensive for those companies to be able to do that Um, but we also have a sister entity the Schmidt Marine Technology Partners um, and they uh, are set up to essentially look for um, nascent technologies and to bring them to a level and to fund them through that what's called the value of death to bring them out into the world. So um, I think that uh, so that that model then feeds into what we need. We look at those technologies, we utilize those technologies, we implement those technologies. Um, and it, it, it's a it's a you know, it's a really good model to get um, t- to bring those technologies out. I think one thing I want to say about uh, the scale of innovation, though, is, and we learned this during the course of the Ocean Discovery X Prize, where we had a bonus competition from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, is that innovation is coming from everywhere these days. The world is now set up for people around the world, globally, all ages, whether they're experts or not, to if they have a bright idea, uh, to implement that. And the winners from that bonus prize were a group of high school and junior high kids uh, who won, you know, $800,000. And uh, I mean, I can't even imagine winning that at that age. But uh, again, it's the competition. But the fact that kids beat out, you know, like engineers in this shows that uh, our pace of increasing uh, innovation is also uh, increasing, I should say. It's exponentially changing. Yeah, yeah, very good. Pavel, I know you want to comment on this. Is no, no, I, I, to be honest, I want to comment on this and the five other, other comments before. Of course. <laughs> because <laughs> it's just a fascinating discussion. Uh, one of the things which Jotika uh, mentioned before the X-Prize competition, just looking how, how, how looking at the circle of this cocktail of collaborations. So Jotika mentioned about Ocean Discovery Prize, which which that one was actually supported by Shell, 
which was actually won by Seeket, which right now is our key strategic partner. <laughs> Just looking how really one consistent environment this is and uh, how much more we can accomplish if we support each other. So our, our uh, carbon neutral target is 2035, but it's only from our operations and we will achieve this. I mean, we're in the middle of the big transformation with everyone, like everyone else, but we will do this. But this is only our operations. We actually, this is not yet scalable. It becomes scalable if we use our core competence, what is it that we're best in and support other players in the industry with this competence for them to accomplish their targets. And just uh, looking right now, we're, we're partner, we're partnering with uh, numerous um, offshore wind companies, energy companies. This, this is one of the biggest markets right now. We've recently partnered with um, um, offshore floating solar farm uh, uh, company who is introducing this big one by one kilometer solar panels. Uh, we are now in a discussion of partnering with, with yet another company to, in, to, to, to stimulate uh, carbon neutral shipping. We, we, we can introduce charging points in, in the middle of the ocean, which would drastically increase the range of, this, of these vehicles. Uh, a different example, on the way to our projects, we, we sometimes make thousand kilometers just to get to the location where we'll acquire data. And a couple of years ago, we just started having our sensors on and just collecting hydrography, bathymetry data and just uh, and, and, and uh, passing it to, to, to companies, to, to organizations like Jepco 2030 and just contributing with this huge amount of data to, uh, to increase uh, sustainability. But that 2030 example, isn't that a wonderful example of the 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 result that things are speeding up? Um, Jodica, was it you who told me that, um, first of all, back in the 60s, they talked about 200 to 300 years to map the seabed. But now, as we've just heard from Pavel, it's 2030. Uh, yeah, actually. Uh, so it was uh, when we were launching the Ocean Discovery X Prize that, uh, so that was only in 2015, that the estimate was it would take 200 to 600 years to map the seafloor at a high resolution. And so that some of the technology that came out of that competition is going to feed in, as, as Pavel just said, to mapping the seafloor and to getting this done by 2030. And it is this massive international effort that is now underway. It's a partnership with governments and industry and academia we're involved we have a partnership with uh, seabed 2030 as well as you know as a philanthropic uh, research vessel operator so uh, it's incredible to to imagine that in our lifetimes we will know what the seafloor looks like i think everything has to be faster <laughs> every and, and this discussion just so i'm impatient yeah. and i i love that impatience and it's how do we do it faster but it's Every day is faster than the day before. That's that's the thing. You're never going to have another day as as slow as yesterday. And the volume of data that's coming in that that's it. The volume of data. But we actually have the ability to process this data. We as humans struggle with it, but the computing power has come along that we actually have support for that. So I think when 
when we look backwards, it's easy to look backwards and think, wow, things things are really, really different and it's difficult and it's hard, but it's also really exciting because the volume of data we're getting, the number of sensors, the the fact that we can map the seabed by 2030. I mean, this is through new technology that didn't exist 10 years ago. And what's going to happen when we can see something? All of a sudden, once you can see something, you can start to address the problem. So I think Everything has to be faster, but the world is also enabling us to be faster. We need to remember that. Yeah. I wish the listener could see your face, actually, Sophie, because when you said that, you had the biggest smile I've seen for a long time. In fact, everybody's got a great big smile, but that's the way you've got to approach it, isn't it? You've got to be enthusiastic about masses amount of data, the fact that we can crunch it and we can turn it into something of value. And I think it's very important to make this mental switch because in the past we, we tried to work in silos and both externally and internally. You know, internally we tried to have innovation departments, then interface and a business department. And once innovation is finished, the business adopts it. Where right now, first internally, the whole organization is responsible for co-creation of value and just continuous deployment and adoption of any incremental new products which exist. But also, but also externally, we just need to make sure that uh, we work together because although, well, I'm positive that we have really smart people in our organization, but we don't have all of them. So there are other smart people in other organizations. Not all of them work for us. Uh, also, when you look at the uh, challenges of IP, in, in the past, we used to use IP to stop others from doing something. Well, right now, we would like to use this IP to enable others to generate more value from this for the benefit of the industry and including ourselves. Mm. Was it is it true that um, Silicon Valley was started on um, an open source kind of approach? Uh, yes, actually. Um, I think back in the 70s, um, uh, it was not an open source sort of approach and then things started to shift and the ability to um, develop software and there was a real push towards making that open source. And I think that's what led to software like Linux and uh, other key, you know, programming languages that we use these days. But it did allow for that blossoming of Silicon Valley, that whole idea of open sourcing and sharing of data that Sophie, you know, Sophie just said this, the open sharing of data is really important. And it's true, we have more technology now uh, to discover the ocean, whether it's from satellites to, to uh, beneath the sea, uh, sea surface, than we've had um, in the last 10,000 years to discover what's out there in the ocean. It's amazing. Amazing time to be alive. I mean, there's positivity oozing out of this group here, but do we still have some convincing to do in parts of our organizations on these fronts? Well, I'll, I'll jump in on that. Um, I think it, it, let's talk about this. If, if you're a business that makes your, re, uh, your revenues off of IP, this is scary. This is actually really scary. So it means you've got to shift your business model a little bit. Now, we need to remember if you have a business model, it doesn't, it's not guaranteed. There are external factors that change and your business model needs to evolve. So how quickly do you adapt and shift just because this is how you've been making money in the past, not guaranteed that you're going to continue to make money in the future. And I think what we're seeing is the world is changing. We're trying to tackle some very different 
challenges than we have in the past. So I'll, I'll just say, yeah, this is, this is a challenge. Um, and it depends how much of your revenues come from a, a business model that is truly shifting. But we all need to adapt. Dirk? Yeah, I have two uh, things that I wanted to bring in, in fact, um, around technology. I think technology is not, is a, is not a sufficient condition. It's a necessary condition to get to innovation. It's not a sufficient condition. And the reason I'm saying that is that you can bring technology to large groups of people and it will still do nothing. It may do something for as long as you be there, but then you go home and it collapses. Mm -hmm. You do need to have a fertile ground. And so I think most of the effort that will probably go into uh, certainly around the energy industries um, playing such a vital role uh, to uh, fight climate change is probably around how do we shift from a supplier or wholesale supplier model business to a much more customer centric business. And by which I mean that you actually start to worry about what is maybe your client willing to buy or what kind of solutions would a group of clients really want to have. So in Shell, for example, we've started projects around decarbonization of whole cities. Well, you're not going to go there or any far by just telling them this is what you need to do to, to be decarbonized by 2050 or 2030, whatever the date is. The, the fact, the very fact that you come with sort of a technical blueprint that shows this is how you technically could do this is almost irrelevant. What is far more important is to essentially get into some kind of a co-creation process that first aligns on a common target or a common belief of what may be relevant for us to achieve mm -hmm. and then really work from a client's perspective backwards. Well, I can assure you in a supplier dominated model where everyone or everyone or every company like Shell or oil companies in general will just truck around with big tanker trucks full of gasoline that you don't have to explain how to use that uh, because everyone knows that you need a tank to put it in and off you go. Yeah. Uh, if you do this with almost any other form of energy that you need to bring to bear to make a net zero emission system work, then all of a sudden no one knows anymore how to use that energy. Mm. Uh, hydrogen, if you would do that same trick of tr running around with tanker trucks full of hydrogen, you won't sell anything. So you need to sort of get under the skin of your future clients and actually ask what is it really that these people may be able to do with hydrogen and how would that be attractive to them? And that's the mind shift that I think is needed. That's very difficult in a capital intensive industry like an oil and gas industry is because once you sink in a billion for an oil and gas platform, you better make sure that the oil and gas is bought. And you, one way to do that is that you actually create some form of dominance right, that no one else will get anything else uh, other than oil and gas. Mm. Uh, so you drive a supplier model to, to take out the risk. But if, say, in a net zero emission system, you come to grips with multiple forms of energy that through technology can be customized, like your phone was customized to become a camera, 
then all of a sudden such a line of thinking is no longer really effective. You're, it is the client or the customer that will dictate how the energy system will look like. Yeah. And that's a very big shift. Yes. And that drives the innovation, uh, yeah. in my view, the fact that people need to make that jump. And yeah, I don't know how that will go, uh, but for sure technology is the enabler, but it is not sufficient. No. I mean, it allows me to make the leap into our third question, which is, because I, th I think leadership has a role to play here. What does good leadership look like in this space? And, and, and have we got any great examples amongst our group here of how great leadership really can move us on in, the, in this area? Sophie, may, maybe I can start with you because um, you've certainly, over the years, been in many leadership roles. I think successful leadership in this space comes with a huge dose of humility right now where we have a big challenge in front of us and nobody on this call and nobody I know in my large network knows how to actually solve this but I think we're pointed in the same direction which is good um, and so with that humility comes lots of listening trying to understand different perspectives, different viewpoints. The energy transition is actually really quite different depending where you are in the globe. Are you, are you in the US? Are you in Europe? Are you in Africa? There are different challenges around the energy transition depending on where on the globe you stand. So I think the leadership has humility. It has a lot of listening. It's open. It's creative. We need to be thinking about what what are the groups of people we need to bring together because we we know that the siloed approach doesn't work. We, that's one thing we absolutely know. Um, Jodica just mentioned that we have have youngsters winning innovation awards, which is fantastic. But it's because they don't have the construct around their brain for how things should be. How do we free that? How do we listen to all of these different groups and and bring them together in an environment that allows us to innovate and be creative and have the trust. So I'm a I'm a my leadership style has a lot of humility and and listening and openness and I I really do feel that no no one person knows the way that this is going to work and by talking about that it's actually it frees you up to have a conversation and explore new ideas. I really admire you for that, Sophie, the way that you don't stand there and say, you know, puff your chest out and, and imagine that, you know, you have all the answers. No, this is the right approach, particularly in terms of what we're facing. Anybody else want to add in on that? I'd like to build on, uh, on that. We are working in an industry that is not very diverse. And one thing that will accelerate a lot of innovation and also has an opportunity to to really resonate with far more people is to really make sure that we have leaders that come from different backgrounds different thoughts and not all from the same school mm. let alone from the same ethnicity and the oil and gas industry is not known for its diversity if you look at pictures of senior leadership in almost any large uh, international oil and gas company it's a bunch of 50 year olds in suits that 
do not resonate with any sort of group in society anymore. Mm. Unless you're in a 50-year-old suits sort of generation. <laughs> <laughs> but that's exactly the problem. Yes, yeah. So yeah. we're dealing with a these, these net zero emission things is building a cathedral. We will build the foundation, but we will not live to see its accomplishment. Mm. Uh, ironically, we don't live in a time. We need an, any solution now. Well, well, it won't happen. Right? The solutions will come, but they will not come, say, within our lifetime to the full extent. Mm. We can make a large amount of uh, progress for sure. Um, but in order to do that, you really need, say, a belief of how cathedrals were, uh, for example, draw analogies from how cathedrals were built in the past. Yeah. Uh, people were, were bound by a belief, literally a religion, and were, put, were willing to put their, their lives sometimes into this. Yeah. Uh, and they came from all kinds of backgrounds. And you see this, don't you? When uh, when you walk around a cathedral, you look at the, the 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 foundation stone, and then you look at some stone at the top of the building, and there's about three hundred years apart. They're indeed far apart in time. And what I would what I usually stress in my own company is that well, if you don't start to build diversity at the top of the company, then it, it's not going to happen. No. So there has to be an intervention. And I, not an intervention based for the, uh, say, on the sake of, well, let's just make sure that we tick the boxes of how many people from, uh, from, from particular backgrounds we have on, on, on seat, but how do we actually make sure that we create teams that indeed come up with different solutions that probably wouldn't be there if it were all from the same school. And I can assure you, we have some experience in that in Shell. That accelerates more than anything else. That is the magic, perhaps. Bring more people in with different backgrounds. Yeah, and that's not an easy job, is it? Peter? Yeah, I'd, I'd say I totally agree with Dirk, but I also wondered, do you see the diversity coming from different backgrounds, as in uh, different schools and stuff, but also the age, maybe? Well, yes. Um, I, I don't want to sort of uh, suggest that we all need to be of the same age before you can do something. <laughs> It is true, though, that once you spend a lot of money on behalf of shareholders, then people do want to have some reassurances that that money hasn't a chance to come back uh, and probably and hopefully with a multiplier. Uh, so it's not easy in that sense. It's not a it's not a free thing. You don't do this to be nice. Uh, you need to earn that space. Um, but I do think we need to become a lot more relaxed on how we empower teams. And how do we, in fact, these these lessons have been learned before and we sort of unlearned them. Uh, <laughs> but winning a hill in a war uh, is not done from headquarters somewhere far away in a city. Uh, it's actually done by the platoon who actually landed and is faced with this hill. And now you have to cope with the fact that half of what the people told you at home, this is what you will see, is not really there. Uh, and the situation is therefore different. Yeah, the reason that I started about age is because also Jotika just mentioned uh, a, a high school team winning a competition. And we also see it in our collaboration. The, the, the young people really have that, uh, yeah, puppy dog energy. And if you can combine that with, uh, with experience, uh, decades of experience of 
yeah, the, the companies that you're working with and all the, uh, maybe executives, uh, yeah, that, that, that combination could be a real, uh, real nice way to, to, to start that innovation because you really see that the young people can inspire, are inspired and really can inspire uh, also the other one, other ones with their energy. So I would say invest in education and don't look just as companies. We used to invest in PhDs to work on projects that we like. Uh, but you could, we also have programs now, certainly in, com- in countries that are not blessed with superb educational systems to really reach out and build educational systems that aim for a different type of education, perhaps, than we went through school, less discipline oriented, but more like problem or theme solving or, or and that amounts to creativity and, and inspiration. We do this in India. I teach in India, for example. And we I'm in the board of a an NGO that proudly uh, has achieved one and a half million people going through an extra curriculum set of courses on how to be inspired by science and s- applying this to everyday problems in their villages. Wow. What I think very important here, Derek, is uh, why you personally take part in these programs. And, and that's because you're an authentic leader. So you truly believe in, in this vision. No, but you truly, and this is, this is what, uh, what I actually admire most in, in leadership, being truly authentic to what you stand behind. So, and that's on a personal and corporate level. So on a corporate level, when we've been considering our uh, carbon zero targets, well, we were not interested in, you know, buying credits. This, that's not actually making a difference. We've been considering when would be the moment when we could actually transform the business and and make an impact. This is the same at the personal level. Well, I have a um, car charging point installed in my house yesterday, and at the end of this process, the gentleman asked me, uh, "Would you like to have Would you like to have your uh, charging point uh, available on the map so everyone can plug into your you know your house?" Well, initially it was scary, but then I, I took another five seconds and I said, of course, of course I do. It would actually be good. It, it, it would make uh, electric uh, cars much more popular. And because to me, it's not a business. It's, it's, it's truly a personal thing. We were doing it for our kids. And, and, and this is also for other parts of the business. Uh, one, one of the services, one of the industries we are active in is sustainable infrastructure. And sustainable infrastructure is, is all about asset utilization, like effective, efficient asset utilization. And, and here as well, to me, when we, we go to, to meet clients or partners, I mean, I, I take Uber or any other car ride sharing because it's actually about asset utilization, effective asset utilization. And I believe in this myself personally. And I think this uh, authenticity in, in leadership brings trust and then trust brings partners. So we only have a few minutes left. Um, Jodica on leadership. Yeah, um, I was listening to everyone uh, ahead of me on this panel and uh, from the diversity to uh, the humility to the youth um, and the authenticity. And what struck me is we're here to talk about technology and innovation and it all goes back to the people. And that's really what makes a good team. It what ma- It's what makes innovation go forward. 
I recently heard a really nice term that I will be using henceforth, which is that um, really technology and innovation for humans is essentially augmenting our reality. It's there. It's there, not in the you know visual only way. It's actually augmenting intelligence. We're using it to further our own understanding, our own uh, ability, our own scaling and exploration of this planet. Um, and part of that is that crowdsourcing and the crowd sharing of information. And I know you'd mentioned Ramshorn Squid right at the beginning, so I'm just going to quickly tell that story. Uh, so we had a dive last year with our ROV Sebastian, and it was transmitting the 4K camera video, and it caught this ram's horn squid in the wild. It's the first time that that's ever been seen in the wild. Previously, they had captured it, and it had only ever been observed in, in captivity. And what was remarkable is, in the wild, it swims upside down. So all the scientific theories on how this creature operates were literally turned on their head. <laughs> they were turned upside down. But the interesting thing, in addition to that, was we were watching and didn't know the significance of this. The scientists on board didn't know the significance because none of us are squid experts. But because we were live transmitting, there were scientists around the world who were experts on this. And it's only when we started to see the Twitter chatter about, oh my gosh, this is amazing, what's this that we realized the significance of this. And so that shows the power of essentially crowdsourcing scientific intellectual capital as well in making discoveries. And I just look at everyone on the call here and I can tell that uh, having puppy dog energy is not per se linked to age. <laughs> I hope you weren't making a remark about me there, Pavel. <laughs> <laughs> Look, let's wind up. This has been a, a really quite an incredible session. Actually, I started taking a few quotes just towards the end of our session there. You know, invest in education. We, we unlearn lessons learnt. Youth, truly authentic leader. And the one I really love, uh, Joe jo Decay, is it all goes back to people. This conversation also today also resonates with something that happened to me on the weekend on, on, on Sunday. I came across um, a park caretaker now she was fixing i don't know it was a warped wooden dustbin or something the conversation had progressed on to the cause of the issue which happened to be climate change things had warped etc her walk away remark to me she turned and she said who cares about the polar bears and you know it just sort of shocked me really i didn't expect that comment um it was obviously a rhetorical question uh, but she was super serious she was super serious and then she was on her way. Maybe it's another superlative phrase, but, but clearly people do care. Listening to this conversation, people do care. And just as one of the animals on the planet, we are starting to do smart things and doing something about it. This is all good news and we've got to build on this. So until next time, be safe, be remarkable, be the difference. <laughs>